Luke chapter 12 is where we're at, so go ahead and open your Bibles right up to there. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, that's just fine. We have you covered. Uh, There's a Bible sitting in the seat back in front of you. You're welcome to open up there. All right, the moral of the story. Think about the moral of the story for a moment. That is... That is sort of the little lesson that you're supposed to be getting out of the story being told in the moment. And for me, growing up, maybe you were like this as well. There was something called Aesop's Fables. Everyone, everyone hear of those before? Uh, famous for having a moral to the story, right? Oftentimes, my brain would wander and I'd be like, I wonder what it's like to talk to a dolphin. You know, like I'm, I'm supposed to be learning something from this, but I'm not quite getting it. So here's a few examples. Appearances are often deceiving from the wolf in sheep's clothing. Avoid a remedy that is worse than the disease. Here's another one. Don't make much ado about nothing and familiarity breeds contempt from the fox and the lion. So you read these little stories, and there's kind, of a, there's kind of a pithy little lesson that you're kind of grabbing from that. The moral of the story is really, really important as to, as to what the story is all about. But I wanted to direct your attention this morning to the, the motive of the story. The motive of the story can actually say a ton about the story as well and about how we understand something. We've been in this series called Red Words, and it's the idea that the greatest preacher who ever walked the planet still preaches to us. He preaches to us through his word. And we have recorded for us many of Jesus' teachings that get to speak right into our lives. I'm so appreciative of James. I texted James yesterday. James, I'm praying for you. You know, your courage to share your story is God-honoring. Amen? Isn't that powerful to hear what God's doing? God's doing stuff all the time. One of the unique things that I get to be a part of is I get to hear from a lot of different people and all the amazing things God's doing in our midst. And one of my roles is to report that back to you, to just use that. I love when I get to use illustrations from our own community of what God's doing. And there's a lot of them. And one of the things God's doing is that in response to his word that is living and active, lives are being changed. Hearts are being transformed. Wills are being completely molded and shaped for God's glory rather than their own. And Jesus still is preaching to us. Of course, one of Jesus' favorite teaching methods was stories, right? So he had morals to his stories. He had reasons that he told them. But there was also motive. And, and that's, what I wanna, that's what I wanna look at this morning, that it actually helps us understand what the story's about by understanding the motive of the, of the story. So Luke chapter 12, look at verse 13 with me. Sometimes the, the answer as to why did Jesus tell that story at that time to that person is really obvious. And this is one of those cases. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Pause for a moment. So he's going to go on to tell a parable, a little story with a a moral to it. Um, And it's in response to what? It's in response to a family member who may be trying to defraud another family member over inheritance. Does this sound current and modern day? Yeah. People are still trying to do that, right? Um, Jesus had just taught uh, people earlier in in, in in the book to ask and seek and knock. He was teaching them about prayer. And he invites people to ask and seek and knock of God. Um, what's interesting is this man takes him up on it. He's giving this a try, is he not? 
What he's doing is he's stepping forward. He's an unnamed guy. We don't know really much about him. But he steps forward. He's like, all right, I'll ask Seek and Knock. Uh, I want to ask him to tell my brother to stop defrauding me my inheritance. So he kind of tries out this thing. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus just immediately give him what he asks for? Hardly, right? Here the guy is obeying, ask, seek, and knock. And Jesus goes in a totally different direction. He's asking about being defrauded and about inheritance. And Jesus circumvents his request and gets to a life lesson for this guy. The life lesson for this guy is um, greed. Sometimes Jesus invites us to ask. He always invites us to ask, actually, and doesn't deal directly with what we think is our most pressing need, right? We're asking and talking on this front, and God circumvents and comes around and says, you know what the hard issue is? It's right here. You don't need dealings with this right here. That's what you thought you asked. And, but in the asking, it kind of opened the door for this story about greed to come up. A request for justice is met with exposing the deadly effects of greed. One of the powers about story is it really invites participation. If you think about it, Jesus, in doling out truth, actually makes it harder for people to receive it by the fact that he requires their participation in it. He could have said some truth statement about greed, right? It's not hard to imagine Jesus knowing a little bit about greed, knowing a little bit about inheritance and all that. He could have just given him a principle right there. Instead, he stops and he tells a story. He tells a story. If the man is not a farmer, this story has to do with a farmer. If the man's not a farmer, or if he's a literalist, you know what might happen? The lesson might go right over his head. He might go, this didn't work. I'm asking this guy about defrauding, you know, my, my brother defrauding me. He tells me some story about a farmer. I'm not going to him anymore. But if he has eyes to see, is how Jesus said it, or ears to hear, what's going to happen? He's going to receive the life lesson for him in this moment where he's asking Jesus about something totally different. You must enter in and see yourself in a parable to gain from it. You know what a lot of you want from me this morning? Dave, give me three easy steps. Give me four things. Give me a list. I can just go and do these things. Sometimes I provide that. Sometimes Ben provides that. We're not trying to hide truth from you. We're not trying to make this harder. I do want to give handles to people. But do you know what the reality is? There aren't three easy steps to saving a marriage that's being destroyed by drugs. There just isn't. It's a work of the Lord that's going to go on. Now, there are some things you can participate and walk in. I'll tell you a little bit more about their story. God drew Allie to this church long before I saw James. So Allie started just coming to church here. And, and so there are things to do, but I can't just give you three or four easy steps. You know what's more? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus could have given the steps if there were steps. He so often told a story. He invites participation. He says, let me show you some things. Stories, rather than steps, requires imagination. It requires pondering a little bit deeper. It requires discussion a little bit. It requires debate about what did he mean by that. It requires further follow-up questions that often get to the heart of things. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, dot, dot, dot. 
So why is Jesus telling the parable? Covetousness. Greed is a little bit more of a modern word for us. Similar ideas. Do you know what made the Ten Commandments? Greed. Think about the top ten deadliest diseases. I looked it up. You know what number ten is? TB. I just had a TB test recently for, for a physical. I don't think much about TB. You know why? I don't have TB. You know when I would think about it? As if I got it. If it was diagnosed, I would start to think about it and realize, wow, worldwide this is on the top ten deadliest diseases. This is serious stuff. Greed is a parasite of the heart. And if you don't think you have greed in your life, you don't worry too much about it. You don't think too much about it. But as soon as Jesus diagnoses it in this person, it ought to rise to the level of saying, wow, that's in the Ten Commandments. Probably pretty important stuff to be thinking about greed. You shall not covet. This commandment goes on for a little bit to kind of clarify that. Don't lust after your neighbor's house, his wife, his stuff. And then he goes on to say this, or anything that is your neighbor's. That covers a lot of ground. His health, his talent, his hair, if you're bald, right? I mean, it goes, it goes to these, it gets to the heart of the issue, right? God knows that this has a way of stealing life, coveting, greed. It never gives you life. It steals it. And so he goes in and does surgery. He puts it this way, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 14, the word you is plural, which probably means that he's saying it this way. He's saying that who made me arbitrator between you guys, meaning there's greed, there's covetousness in both of you. What that means is this. Um, There is not an answer until we deal with this that is going to satisfy either one of you. Have you ever been involved in a family dispute over a will? It's ugly. What happens is that there's greed and covetousness lurking in the heart, and when this will comes out, that's the occasion that it starts to express itself, and it gets really, really ugly. Jesus comes in and does surgery. You know what's amazing is the culture that Jesus came to. He came to a very specific time, place, and culture. He came to an honor-shame culture, which is really foreign to a lot of us in in the States. We kind of have no shame, I think. But in an honor-shame culture, the worst thing is to lose face. And so gentle and so loving is this man Jesus that the way that he rebukes this guy is a little bit backdoor. Let me tell you a story. And if the guy has eyes to see and ears to hear, he's going to see himself in that story. If not, he's going to walk away, and he's not going to be painted into a corner where he has to defend himself. Do you see that? It's powerful the way Jesus lovingly comes in and gives us what we need, even if we don't want it, but he doesn't shove it down our throats. He does it in a gracious way. One more thing I want to show you before we get into the actual story is this. Uh, we did a series a while ago called Greater Than. It was the idea of how do we, how do we prioritize like Jesus? Uh, these are all available online, by the way. And some of you say, wow, I'd love to go back and re-listen to one on my relationships because I'm having a hard time prioritizing my relationships or my stuff or, or my time or my ministry or, or some of these other things. In looking at this, what we realized or uh, what we said and talked about often um, is that priorities provide clarity. 
There's some short-term pain to getting your priorities straight. But we always talk about readjusting your priorities, right? Getting them back on track. When your priorities get off base, some, some bad things can happen. The truth is you'll never get to all that is important. Amen? So you must choose. You can't possibly get to everything that's important, so you have to make choices. And priorities clarify these tough decisions. Let's look at Jesus in this setting. Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly king or else this role of starting to make judgments and do what rabbis would normally have done in that day and age would have been a great time to start establishing an earthly kingdom, not what he was about. Does Jesus have authority? Yeah. Is he a judge? Yeah. But this isn't what he came to do. He came to preach repentance. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? Priorities. Does God care about justice? Read the Old Testament, then read the New, then read them all again. Yes! A resounding yes! God cares about justice. Jesus cares about justice. But in this situation, what's the priority? The priority was that parasite of greed in this individual. Not justice going on. Jesus cares more about the outside than the inside. Does he care about outside things? Absolutely, he talks about outside things. But he knows that things that last are the soul, and stuff that doesn't uh, is, is not as valuable. So he's going after the heart rather than stuff that's going to end up burning in the end. All right, how are we to relate to worldly possessions and goods? That's essentially what Jesus is going after. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that Jesus gets into your business, so to speak. And here he is, he's at it again. And this time he's messing with our stuff. Jesus, not me, okay? So get mad at Jesus if this offends, not at me. Uh, verse 16, follow along with me um, of the story that he tells. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you see first world problems going on here? Right? I've got so much stuff. Ah, I'm so stretched out. What am I going to do with it all? Right? First world problems. We all have them in this room. Okay? We didn't ask to be born into the first world, so don't feel guilt about having first world problems. Just recognize that your stress level over where to store all your extra stuff is first world problems, right? So that's what we have going on. Um, the modern day equivalent, by the way, would be something like this. Instead of build, building bigger barns and tearing down old ones, we might talk about storage units. Um, we might talk about walk-in closets, garages that have tons of stuff in it, and 401ks, okay? We don't tend to store up grain in the Silicon Valley. We store up wealth. We store up things, okay? Now, can I just say this really plainly up front? No judgment to you who have walk-in closets. No judgment to you who have two, three, four, five, six, seven-car garages. 
I'd like to see your garage if you have a seven-car garage. That'd be kind of cool. Um, no judgment if you have a 401k, right? Th- these, are all, these are all fine to have. I'm just going to put that out there right, right up front. Um, however, recognize that, that these are modern-day equivalents. And, and again, don't be a literalist. Well, I'm not a farmer. I don't have grain. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm in the clear, right? I've never torn down a barn and built a bigger one for grain. Well, let's look a little deeper than that. Verse 19, he makes two fatal errors. One is that he thinks he has many years to live. He's making plans, which isn't bad. We're actually told to make plans. But he's pretty convinced he's got tons of years left to make or to, to, to have. Number two is that he thinks stuff can fill the soul. Let me do something right now. I want to make a list of, uh, of things that money can't buy. Okay? Now, the Beatles get us started with love, right? We know that, that you can't buy love, right? Um, so what else is there? This is an actual question with actual responses. It's going to be really awkward if you don't participate here because I'm going to remain silent and I can outlast you. So <laughs> let's make a list of things that money cannot buy. Love is number one. What else in the back? Health. Health. Yeah. Happiness. Respect. Grain. What? Grain. Grain. Rain. Okay, I was going to say, I think I could buy some grain, actually. Rain is actually right. In drought-ridden uh, California. Trust. Faith. Salvation. Integrity. Are we going fast enough for you, Jameson? This is the old school way. I'd be writing like a madman on a chalkboard, but we've got technology. He's like, just... Okay, let's, let's, let's leave it there for a moment. Just, just take a look at that list. And if your mind pondered for a whopping two more minutes, think of how long that list could be and, and think about the true riches that are, that, are, that are represented on the screen right now. I mean, these are the true riches that, again, if you were to attend a funeral this afternoon and you would walk away thinking, you know, what's really important in life? What should I really be giving my life to? What do I really want out of life? We could add purpose. Fulfillment. We could add the fruit of the Spirit, right? Joy. Peace. Man, people are trying to buy peace in spades. These are the true riches. The moral of this story, Jesus tells us really in verse 21, and it can be summed up this way. Don't work so hard storing up things that you ignore your relationship to God. Don't work so hard storing up stuff and forget about your soul. Do you know that more is a monster? The more monster. You ought to learn to recognize the more monster. And if you're parents, you ought to teach your kids about the more monster. You ought to just point out, there it is. That's the more monster right there. Ads want more of your money by dangling more stuff in front of you. Right? We're bombarded by them. Some of you know this by personal experience, some of you by observation with other people, but the truth is that more money often equals more problems. I need some readers this morning. If you're volunteering to be a reader, it means you're going to stand up and read one of these passages. Proverbs, who's got it? Someone help me out. I'll give you a moment to to look it up. Thank you, in the back. Uh, Matthew, who's got Matthew? I'm going to stare at you awkwardly, Dwayne, until you do it. First Timothy 6. Rob, thank you. Uh, more money often equals more problems. Here's the, here's the reality. This has been observed for a long, long time, but we keep getting duped into this, right? The reason that Jesus' parable played well back 
in the day and plays well today is we keep kind of going around the same cul-de-sac, not learning the lesson, not getting it. Even when we see other people, if our response is, yeah, I'd love to have those kind of problems with too much money, it shows our heart, doesn't it? It shows that we really don't believe we'd be, we'd be the same, that, that we'd, we'd handle it differently. And so we think, oh, if only there was a little more money, it would solve so many problems. And we're so often blind to the added pain that money can bring. Um, Proverbs 37 to 9. Can you stand up and read that for us, Sarah? Thank you. Dwayne, uh, the Matthew passage, Matthew 13. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So wealth and abundance can choke out the word of God. Do we see that? Yeah. How about 1 Timothy 6? But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. Thank you. So to be crystal clear, wealth and money are not bad, right? It's the love of money that's, that's the root of all evil. It has the ability to create snares and temptations. It has the ability to, to provide a false sense of security. It has the ability to, to pain you, to hurt you, right? This guy in the story that Jesus tells needed to be shown his wrong understanding of more. Don't try to read that. It's in your Bible right in front of you, okay? Um, Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. Just last week, Jesus said these words that were to be shrewd as a serpent. Remember, he sends the disciples out. He tells them, be shrewd as serpents. Isn't this just shrewd business? Isn't this just being worldly wise to store up for a rainy day? Anyone thinking that? I hope you're thinking that because that's a question that, that ought to be kind of pushed back on this a little bit. Yet evidently, Jesus didn't see shrewdness here, or else he would have commended that. He saw selfishness. And if you kind of zoom in and, and look at the text for a moment, uh, there's, there's a hint as to what it is. There are 11 personal pronouns. I, my, my, I, 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 my. Then he pauses and talks to himself, right? If you ever refer to yourself in the third person or talk to yourself and say, I am I a bunch, there's a decent chance that selfishness is at play. So instead of shrewd business, what we see is selfishness. The character in the story is selfish and not shrewd. The point of that is that sometimes sin can appear clothed in righteousness, but it's a mask. It's a Halloween costume, right? Sometimes people say, oh, you've got such good boundaries set up. You're so good at saying no to, to things. Well, that could just be laziness, right? I've got to have my quiet time. Wow, you are godly. Well, maybe you're just lazy. 
Maybe you're just being selfish. Gosh, you're really good at saving up for a rainy day. You're, you're really good at, at planning ahead. You know what? Maybe that person is totally trusting in himself. He doesn't believe in a good, almighty, sovereign God, and he would never take a risk. Remember the, the parable of the minas? What did the one who got rebuked as a wicked slave do? He stored it up for a rainy day. He buried it in a handkerchief. Why? Because he didn't trust God with it. Didn't trust he could go and make use of it. If you seek the storehouse for comfort or rest in your surplus to save, maybe it's become an idol to you. Maybe you're bowing down at surplus. Maybe you're bowing down at the 401k, saying, that's my salvation. When the recession hit and people started literally to take their own life because their life savings had just got wiped away, it's a sad, painful, vivid truth of where that person's comfort and salvation, who their God was. Their God had just been killed. And so they took their life. We all know that enough stuff is never enough, right? I mean, enough stuff never comes. It's, it's always kind of one more thing. This has been true for a long time. Mark Twain once defined civilization this way, a limitless multiplication, multiplication of unnecessary necessities. <laughs> I was talking with a college leader uh, of mine one time, and I said, I said, hey, you know, she was going to be late to Bible study or doing something. I said, what are you up to? She's like, oh, I'm going into Target to buy a whole bunch of stuff I don't need. And she was really ministry-minded, and I laughed, and I, it kind of stayed with me. And now I go to Target. I'm like, yeah, I don't need this. Don't need that, right? I mean, it presents you with a gazillion choices. And now we've got it in our phone, right? I mean, just anything our hearts could possibly want to look up and check a price on, here it is in our hands. How then should we regard possessions? Or to ask it another way, what is the proper use of abundant produce? What should we be doing with all the surplus? The guy in Jesus' story, here was his plan. Uh, he talked to himself. He made assumptions that anything extra was meant for him, and then he executed his plan. You know what? This plan is going on all around you, and it's broken. He regarded his stuff and made a plan for his stuff, but he never considered his soul. Never made a plan for his soul. You know, it's interesting. You, you go and talk to people, and people love to... It's easy to talk with people about their stuff. Um, I don't know if you find this to be true, but people have precious little time to talk about their soul. The right people will sit down and talk your ear off. I bump into those people once in a while. But I'd say 9 out of 10, they'd love to talk about their stuff. But the minute you start to talk about eternity, the minute you start to talk about their soul, their spirit, man, they, they just want to shut it off. If you're finding that frustrating, you know what you should do? Go to more funerals. You know why? Because at funerals, there's this little window where people are like, I'm going to consider my soul. I'm going to consider eternity. Jot that down. You're like, my pastor said. i got to start. I've been crashing weddings. Now i got to crash funerals, right? But isn't it true that at a funeral, there's this window of time where you start thinking about those true riches, about, gosh, what are they going to say about me? What would accurately be put on my tombstone, Right? Soul wealth and soul poverty actually give us insight to worldly wealth and worldly poverty. 
Let me throw out a message that Jesus proclaimed and is pretty familiar to most of you in this room. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we covered this in this series a couple months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Why on earth is it good that you're poor? Isn't it because when you're poor and empty of spirit and you realize your own poverty, that you're open to receiving untold riches from God? It really is a blessing. It's a gift. Man, lucky you. (laughs) You've discovered the poverty of spirit. Those who keep trusting in self, excusing themselves, feeling good about themselves, no matter what their actions have been, are incapable of seeing their need for God, much less admitting it. The first step to receiving untold riches from God, forgiveness, salvation, peace, lasting joy, purpose, starts with our own poverty of spirit. You know who doesn't get in on the kingdom of God? Those who are wealthy in self, propping themselves up with how good they... I've done bad stuff. I'll give you that. Who hasn't, right? To err is human. But I've done a lot of good things as well. I mean, that person's still trying to to prop up a bank account that doesn't exist. Understanding that, having a picture of our own poverty leads to an understanding of our stuff, leads to a proper view of this life. Because we understand that blessed are the poorest spirit, because we receive untold riches from God, you can't hurt me by taking my stuff. You can't thrill me to the deepest level by giving me stuff. It doesn't have a hold on me like it used to. Christians can and should lead the way out of the rampant accumulation of things and instead run toward being rich toward God. Christians can and should lead the charge in stopping the madness of of more and more accumulation of stuff and instead run toward being rich toward God. I mean, the accumulation of things is the American way, right? That's why we got red, white, and blue on the screen. But who will stop if not Christians? What if there was a new American tradition that was birthed out of Christians across the land? And this new American tradition had something like this going on. We spent less simply so that others could have more. We intentionally limited so that others could gain. You know that there's an obscene amount of money spent on advertising every single year? There is tons of variety to advertising, but every advertisement has something in common. Every ad we see is united on this message, spend more. No matter what their tactic, no matter what they're trying to get at, they're all united in that front, spend more. By creating a distaste for the old, they prey on everyone's lust for the new, right? And often it's as silly as this right here. And we go, I've got to have it. Why? I'm not sure. It's new. What's new about it? Couldn't tell you. But it was on sale. Advertisers are trained to convince you that wants are actually needs. Jot down 1 John chapter 2. 
1 John 2, 15 to 16 lists three enemies of the soul. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Here's a little exercise in advertising to look for this. The lust of the flesh. It's that pizza commercial that zooms in on the cheese and is, as it's pulling away, right? And you're like, I've got to have cheese, right? And you're just like, I need that pizza now, right? And it's as easy as a phone call away. There it is. That's the lust of the flesh. It's that new mattress with your own personal sleep number. And you're like, that's the problem. I'm tossing and turning. I'm probably a couple numbers off. I don't have my own personal number. I've got to get that. That's a good deal. How about the amount of medicine that will make you feel better, right? Never mind that a decade after most every medicine comes out, they're like, whoops, (laughs) we forgot to tell you. Or it was in the fine print or the stuff that scrolls so fast, right, that you can't read it. I mean, this is ongoing. What what, what is it targeted at? It's going to make you feel better. That's the lust of the flesh. How about the lust of the eyes? Clothes that fit that airbrushed model perfectly, and you're like, I think that would look good on me. And then you buy it, and you're like, not so much. It just doesn't look the same. Not sure what happened between the, the model and me. How about that superhuman shiny thing in your hand, a.k.a. the latest iPhone, iWatch, whatever gadget, right? And you're like, you're like, man, having this, I just, I saw it. You're like a fish, you know, with a lure. You're like, you know, you've got to have this thing. And you watch people at these stores, you know what their job is? It's to keep it shiny because all of you get your grubby hands on it, trying it, and they shine it up again, and the next person comes like, you know, moth to the light, and they're like, must have. They, they just kind of keep going. It's the girl pitching lawnmowers that, oops, I forgot, I'm only wearing my bathing suit. How did that happen, right? And it's like, no, 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 you're selling lawnmowers. This was done on purpose, right? This is advertising. This is what people do. How about the boastful pride of life, the appeal, I deserve it, I'm worth it. And you think in your head, I have a driving machine, but I deserve the ultimate the ultimate driving machine, which, of course, is Bavarian Motor Works BMW, right? Now, again, no shame on anyone who owns a BMW, okay? If you, if you feel convicted and you want to bless your pastor with a BMW, <laughs> I promise you, you will see a BMW, and I won't have any shame about it. Keep your BMW. I'm just, I'm just picking on that because Gria owns one. I like to pick on him about BMW. You know what? It's... It's the boastful pride of life, though, that thinks, you know what, if I have this, I'll, I'll kind of be something. We'd never say that out loud because that's so cheesy, but we, but we kind of buy into that. This is something that we, we all kind of see. So the idea of setting our minds on things that will last is going to take some real intentionality, is it not? Uh, words on a screen, I try to make this slide as boring as possible. Words on a screen is a lot less cool than BMW's shiny logo. It just is or the neon flashing lights of Vegas, or what was the other one? Pizza, right? We look at those, and we're immediately triggered to go, yes. Words on a screen, we're like, change the channel. So this is going to take some intentionality. Say, God, I need your help in just putting my eyes on things that are going to last. Don't let me go from funeral to funeral, have a little, like, eternity buzz for, for 10 minutes after a funeral, and then get right back to it. Romans 8, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Let me show you some spending realities. Maybe these will help you kind of fight the more monster. One is this, that money buys stuff and some fun, but it never buys happiness, peace, or relationships, or joy. Never. It can't do that. Um, the rich have a harder time in spiritual matters. Jesus talking about how hard it is for a rich person to get into heaven. The disciples were like scratching their head. And who can get in? What does he say? Hey, with God, all things are possible. Even the rich can look past their shiny things in their hand and see their need for spiritual matters. Finally, greater treasure is found in giving than in receiving. If you are more concerned with your standard of living than other people simply living, and test yourself in this. I would say the same thing Jesus is saying here. Be on guard. Watch out. Take care. Um, let me say this too. You cannot change your spending habits from yesterday, correct? You can't unspend it. I suppose if the tags are still in the clothes, you could take it back. But for the most part, you can't change how you spent money yesterday. So let's not cry over spilt milk, right? But as we try to teach in our home, let's not keep spilling milk, right? Let's not keep doing the same thing and then regretting it. Let's change. Let's say, God, I'm not responsible for what I didn't know. I see it now. You've shown me. I am solely concerned with raising my standard of living. It's never dawned on me that other people have a hard time simply living. You've shown me that today. I want to change. Help me. That's a great prayer. God will honor that. Dream with me for a moment. Dream with me about being rich toward God. What if we in this church led the way of living on less so that we could be instruments of God's blessing to other people? What if we could live more simply so others may simply live? In 2009, we did this thing called Advent Conspiracy, and we taught around Christmas time, and we kind of dreamt together, and we put out this challenge. We said, let's, let's turn the dial just one notch. Let's not suddenly sell everything we have and go you know, live on a piece of rice a day or something crazy, right? Because we'll be back at it. We know we can't cut that. We, we, we dreamt together and said, what if one last gift at Christmas time this year that had money intentionally set aside for the uns? Here are some of the uns that we mentioned. The unevangelized, the uneducated, the unhoused, the unfed, the unwanted. And we talked about what if this wasn't just a change for this season of time, of the, of the year around Christmas time, but what if this was a, a change? What if this was a season of change in our lives so that a new trajectory began to emerge out of that? 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 tells us some things, and you might want to write this down. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
Do a, little bit of, do a little bit of research this afternoon if you don't think you're rich. Isn't it always easy to point and go, yeah, those rich people ought to do something? Worldwide, historically, everyone in this room is rich. This message is for us. This message is for me. Happening right now at NBC, let me tell you some things that are going on so you can be encouraged. Cars, vacations, food, rooms are sacrificially being shared. People are intentionally lowering their standard of living to raise the standard of living for other people. Time is invested, often behind the scenes, you never see it, in giant, sacrificial ways, simply as being rich toward God and being a blessing to other people. Talents and strength are being offered generously for the sake of others. And in a hundred other ways, faith is being lived out in some remarkable ways right here in this church family. It's why I literally can't wait for Sunday to be with you guys because week after week, day in and day out, I see God at work. I see God moving in this place. It's very powerful. If you are not in on this yet, if this isn't you, if you didn't fit into the category I just talked about, perhaps you are clinging too tightly to things and it's time to let go. So that as this verse says, you may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me have you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. I want to invite you. It's totally open and my eyes are closed too, so I can't see if you're doing it. I don't really care. But I want to invite you to open your hands and lay them palms facing up as we pray this morning. And maybe this could just be kind of a a bodily expression of what you want to be true in your heart and in your mind and in your will and in your wallet in the days ahead. God, we have our hands open to say that we'll we'll let go of whatever it is that's keeping us from you. We can't do it. We know ourselves. We know that left on our own, we will run back to things that feel good now. We will be short-sighted in our investment. We will think of this life alone. God, with our hands open, we're asking you to fill us up. We're expressing. We're we're paupers. We're beggars. We know that our only play is to beg for mercy. It's to receive the grace that comes from only you. I give you praise. God, for the many ways that you're working and moving so tangibly, so clearly in the lives of this community. We long for more. In Jesus' name, amen.